Hello, my name is Jessica Eitvlacht. It is good to see all of you. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I spend most of my time with our teenagers in the hangar, which uh, is the best place to be on Sunday nights. And uh, I love that with them. They are so much fun. Um, We have been spending this Lenten season in the Gospel of Luke, spending about eight weeks in the Gospel of Luke as we look at uh, a lot of the teachings of Jesus, both the public teachings of Jesus and some of the more private teachings of Jesus. Luke is, uh, as we've talked about uh, every week, one of the earliest accounts of Jesus's life, and it's part one of a two-part series, Luke and Acts, that were both written by Luke, and Luke tells us that uh, his goal is to write an account that of Jesus's life that uses as many of the eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry as possible. And so he's writing in, in, uh, to intentionally demonstrate, he's writing to demonstrate the many ways in which Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the story of scripture. The story of brokenness to redemption, of sin to salvation. He has an agenda with this book and that is for us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for. Luke wants to be very clear in his account about who it is that Jesus is. Uh, Last week, Kyle talked about Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah in chapter nine but about how he didn't really understand the implications of that declaration, that he's got the right answers, but he hasn't really counted the cost of following Jesus. And at the end of chapter nine, we see this very important transition verse. In chapter nine, verse 51, we read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is a transition from this earlier part of Jesus's ministry to now he has set his face upon Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the place where he will eventually be arrested, uh, tried in a ridiculous, unfair sham of a trial, uh, and then executed. And so Jesus in verse 51, knowing that that is what is coming, the days drew near for him to be taken up, for him to be taken up into heaven, that he sets his face towards Jerusalem to say, okay, it's time. This is the next thing on my list. And so the narrative is gonna move pretty fast from here on out. From verse, not chapter nine, verse 51 to the end, the narrative moves pretty quickly. For Jesus, this is a turning point in his ministry. He is laser focused on the cross now. If you were to read through the gospel of Luke all the way, you would notice a change in tone, a change in the sense of urgency of the writer, that, uh, that there's an urgency you can feel in the text that Jesus is not playing around anymore. He's a man on a mission. And so we go into chapter 10 with this mindset that Jesus has one thing on his mind, get to Jerusalem, finish the job that he was sent here to do. So we're going to work through just the first part of chapter 10 and uh, today, and we're going to talk about uh, another teaching of Jesus that happens in this kind of new season of his life and ministry, this time with his eyes very much on the cross. And my plan is to walk through it together and, uh, and see if we can kind of get our arms around it to understand it a little bit. And then I have two challenges for you to end on. Does that sound okay? Great. So we are uh, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Let's read together. After these things, the Lord commissioned 72 others and sent them on ahead in pairs to every city and place he was about to go. So a few things to know here first. Uh, Jesus just did this in chapter nine with the 12. Jesus just sent the 12 out to go and to the places where he was about to go. And, um, and remember that the 12 disciples, that when we talk about the 12 disciples and why were there 12, that, that we often think about that term's 
that in terms of the symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's 12 disciples, and that is kind of the idea that the, the people of Israel are kind of encompassed in those, those 12, right? The, the 12 tribes because of the 12 disciples. Um, but now we have this larger number of 72. Depending on the translation that you're reading, uh, your number might say 70. And that depends on whether your translation is pulling from the Greek or the Hebrew manuscripts. And if you're like, what the heck does that even mean? Then let me just say in this particular instance, it could not matter less. But uh, whether it's 70 or 72, no one knows. Um, so, uh, so why 70 or 72? Like, like what is the, whether, which, whichever one it is, why is that the number? Is it just that it's a nice round number? Is it just that it's a big number? So, um, I mean, maybe that, that could be it, but probably it's a throwback reference to Genesis 10. I'm not going to read it because it's a long reference. You can check my work if you want. But Genesis 10 is an accounting of the nations that came about in the first few generations following the flood. So remember, there's this story of Noah and he has these three sons. And in Genesis 10, we go through an accounting of who were the descendants of those three sons and name all of them. And those are all of the nations that come out of the flood. And uh, depending, again, on whether you're looking at a Hebrew manuscript or a Greek manuscript, the total that they come up with is either 70 or 72. And so, uh, so the sending out of the 12 is about uh, Jesus's mission extending to all of the Jewish people. This sending out uh, is about that mission incorporating all the people on earth. Right, all this, so there's 72, this represented by there being 72 nations. So these 72, do you see the correlation? Am I, am I talking? Okay, great. Um, don't get too hung up on the number. I think what Luke wants you to get is that Jesus's mission is not just about the Jewish people, that it's extending to everyone. That's what, that's what Jesus's and Luke are wanting you to understand is that Jesus's mission is for all the people, um, regardless of where they are. Verse two, he said to them, the harvest is bigger than you can imagine but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his harvest. Go. Be warned, though, that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Carry no wallet, no bag, and no sandals. Don't even greet anyone along the way. So Jesus loves the Old Testament book of Isaiah, especially Luke and Jesus. The Jesus that we see in Luke quotes uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, a lot. And so uh, we're going to see that a couple of times here. There's several references to Isaiah in this section. The harvest is imagery that's often employed by the prophets, namely by Isaiah, to talk about the gathering of God's people in the last days. So when we talk about, when you hear Isaiah talk about the harvest, it's usually in reference to a coming judgment day and that there's going to be a, a gathering of all of God's people in these last judgment days. And so uh, Jesus is imparting um, the, this kind of same language to talk about this. In every culture, harvest season is a time of great urgency. So once the harvest is in, landowners, we see this in our biblical text as we read through the New Testament in particular, that uh, when the harvest was in, landowners would often hire extra help to make sure they had plenty of people because you wanted to get the harvest in as quickly as possible so that you could get it at peak ripeness, right? And so that it wouldn't rot on the vine or rot in the fields. You don't want the harvest to go bad, so you need to gather it as quickly as you can. And so, um, so the, the harvest is abundant, but there's not enough workers, Jesus is saying. And so the, there's plenty of people, but we need more help. We have to hire more help in order to make sure that everyone gets in. Jesus is imparting the same sense of urgency that he's now feeling with his face set on Jerusalem, right, to these 72 that he's sending out. And this is enforced in that next set of instructions. First, he says, this is not going to be easy. I'm sending you out as a lamb among wolves. The wolf is a natural predator of the lamb, which is another Isaiah reference. And so they are to expect that there's going to be opposition to this mission. 
that they're not going to go out and everyone is going to be excited to see them, that there's going to be, uh, that they have to, have to be careful when they go. Um, and then there's these instructions, which are similar to the instructions that we were given in chapter nine to the 12, but not identical. And so, so what are these about? Why shouldn't they bring anything or speak to anyone? This again goes back to that sense of urgency that Jesus is trying to impart. For Jesus, this is literally, and I mean that in the literal sense of literally, this is literally a life or death mission, right? This is a life or death moment. He wants these people who are being commissioned to also sense that this is about life or death for those that they will go to on this mission. Don't be distracted by anything, just go. So when Annalise was born, it was a, a bit, Annalise is my, my two-year-old, almost two and a half, and when she was born, it was a bit of a scary moment um, for, for us, for Kevin and I. Um, I'm not gonna go into all of the details or really any of the details because in the end, everything turned out fine for us, and um, I know that there is, in a room this size, probably some of you for whom that would not be the case. If I were to go into the details, it would maybe be hard for some of you to hear, and I don't wanna put you in that spot this morning. So I'm not gonna go into any of, any of the details, but... Um, when we realized that this baby was coming tonight and then uh, that it was urgent, okay? So it was, an, it was an urgent situation that the baby needed to come tonight. I was at my OB's office. I just happened to be at her office and I love her. Uh, she helped, she was my OB for Ella as well as for Annalise. And, um, and so uh, she had just told me that like this is happening now. And so I called Kevin and I put him on speakerphone. Kevin's my husband. I put him on speakerphone and, uh, and I said, I, and I, at this point my body was shaking, right? Because of the urgency. And so I, was, I said to my OB, I have no idea what you just said. Could you just tell him again into the speakerphone? And so she she says, um, Kevin, the baby's gonna come tonight and I need you to go to the hospital. And Kevin says, my, my, my OB is like, she's like nerves of steel, right? Like I don't, like she is just like made of strong stuff. And so she, Kevin says, um, okay, well, I have a few things to wrap up at work. And, uh, and once I finish that, then I'll get in the car and I'll head that way. And my, my OB, which is so, such a sense of like steely calm, is like, Kevin, you're not understanding the urgency of the situation. You're not gonna call anyone you're not gonna pack anything, you're going to get in your car and you're gonna drive to the hospital or you're going to miss the birth of your daughter, right? And Kevin was like, yes, ma'am, and that was it. And everybody, everybody made it on time. Everything was fine. All of the story has a happy ending. Um, and Kevin, I got Kevin's permission to share that story with you. So um, just in case anybody was wondering. So, uh, so that's the type of like urgency that we're talking about, right? Here, Jesus is saying the only thing that matters right now is the message I am sending out with you. So don't be distracted. Don't stop to do anything. Don't stop to finish anything up first. Don't pack any extra clothes and just go. Verse five, whenever you enter a house, first say, may peace be on this house. If anyone there shares God's peace, then your peace will rest on that person. If not, your blessing will return to you. Remain in this house, eating and drinking whatever they set before you for workers deserve their pay. Don't move from house to house. Whenever you enter a city and its people welcome you, eat what they set before you. Heal the sick who are there and say to them, God's kingdom has come upon you. Whenever you enter a city and the people don't welcome you, go out into the streets and say, as a complaint against you, we brush off the dust of your city that has collected on our feet. But know this, God's kingdom has come to you. I assure you that Sodom will be better off on judgment day than that city. Okay, so these itinerant preachers, which is really what they are now, that they're going from place to place, they arrive at their destination and they enter a house. 
And they make this declaration of peace, this blessing of peace on the house that they enter. Now, this is both a very normal way of a person to greet another person, especially for the Israelite people, but it is also a very loaded blessing, right? So this is the, the Hebrew word shalom that you have probably heard of before. And so it's, uh, it's a common way to greet one another, um, but this is not like, hey, how are you, right? That's not what we're talking about here. This is, this is it is my most genuine wish that all will be well with you and that you might know the goodness of God in all its fullness, right? This is like a loaded sense. Shalom is like, may God's peace, may the peace of God in all of its fullness rest on you. I wish the absolute best for you in this moment, right? And so it was common to say it to one another, but it has a lot of meaning. There's a lot of depth to the word shalom. And so Jesus goes on to instruct them uh, that the word, so the word Peace, shalom, it's the first word. It's the opening word. It's the announcing word. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't tell them to do any sort of assessment before they enter into the house. That Jesus doesn't tell them to, uh, to do any sort, don't, they don't need to like determine whether this house follows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They don't need to ask, does this house keep the law? Or is this house likely to receive the good news before they issue this blessing on the house? Jesus doesn't ask them to do a risk assessment or to prejudge whether this house will be worth their time. Jesus just says, enter the house and bless it with shalom. That you enter the house and you bless it. And Jesus goes on to instruct them in the dynamic of sharing peace, that if there's anyone there who shares in peace, who shares in shalom, then your peace will rest upon that person. But if not, it will return to you. So if there is someone there, if there's a person of peace in that house, if there's a person of shalom, then your shalom will kind of take root. Your blessing will take root there. But if there's not, then you haven't lost anything. The shalom will be returned to you. First, Jesus assumes that these apostles that he's sending, these 72, that they have shalom, that they have this peace. Because he says, you extend your peace to them, right? It's not just a random generic peace that will rest on others. It's your peace specifically. And so we don't have to be worried that if we wish peace for others, if we wish the goodness of God to fall on someone else, uh, that in some way we're gonna risk losing it for ourselves. It's not like a, a risk for us. Instead, we can be grounded in our own sense of God's peace, that God's best, that God wants God's best for us, that, our, that God's shalom can rest with us. We can be grounded in our own sense of God's peace and still extend it to other people. That God's peace, God's shalom, it's more than a sense of like calm. It's, uh, it's a sense of confidence in God's abiding presence in our lives. So we can share that presence with others. We can be grounded in knowing that God's presence is in our lives and we can share that. We can share that presence with others without worrying that we'll lose it if it's not uh, accepted by them or welcomed by them. And so while there's a deep urgency to this mission, the 72 are being told to engage those they encounter, not by treating them as objects upon which to ask, right? This isn't, this isn't going out into, uh, into the, the middle of the streets and holding up a sign that says, repent or you're going to hell, right? That's not, that's not the mission that Jesus is sending them on. While it is urgent and while it is important that the message get communicated, that's not what the message is. Instead, the message is for them to be fully and peacefully present, to treat others as sacred with whom they are to share God's abiding presence with, to uh, share meals with them, to get to know them, to enter into their house and to stay there. Notice that Jesus says, don't go from house to house. Find a house, just go to a house 
bless it and then stay there. Share whatever hospitality they extend to you. They are the host. Whatever hospitality they extend, accept it. Whatever food they put before you, accept it. Eat it. Share meals with them. Get to know them. Accept their hospitality, whatever that might be. If they do not share shalom, even then, Jesus does not advise us to, to be reactive or to scorn them or, uh, or polemics. Instead, he reassures his followers that their peace is not diminished. It cannot be taken away from them. It will return to you. So extending the blessing of peace is this low cost, high reward thing. They're instructed to remain in the house and accept the hospitality. And if they're welcomed, then they heal the sick and they proclaim God's kingdom has come upon you. But notice what they do if they're not welcomed. If their peace is not shared, they don't have to coerce or argue or persuade anyone. They don't have to send a nasty tweet or be a jerk in the comment section. If it's not returned, it's fine. They go out into the streets. They shake the dust from their sandals, which is this traditional uh, Israel, uh, Israelite way of, of leaving a place to go back into. So what would often happen is as you reproach, you know, like the, um, you know, the sign that says like, welcome to Virginia, right? And so as you're coming from like DC back into Virginia or from West Virginia back into Virginia, there's the big sign. The idea is that as you get ready to cross the line back into Israel, that you shake the dust of wherever it is that you've been off of your shoes, off of your feet, off of your cloaks before you head back into Israel. So you're not bringing, in this sense, when you think about the Israelite people who for them, that sense of set-apartness uh, was so important, that sense of you're not bringing what was unholy onto what's holy into Israel. But it also has this sense of you're not carrying anything with you. The weight of whatever your past experience was, if you were rejected by this town, you don't need to carry the dust of that town, the rejection of that town, the weight of that town with you as you head on to the next place. And so they're shaking the dust from their feet as they, as they leave, but still declare God's kingdom has come upon you. Here again, Jesus does not instruct them to argue or convince or threaten if they are not welcomed. Instead, they are not weighed down by the rejection or paralyzed with trying to figure out what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Instead, Jesus invites them to move forward with confidence with these two proclamations, peace to this house and the kingdom of God has come near. God's kingdom has come, it's near, it's upon you. You may not welcome it, you may not acknowledge it, but it's coming. Or as my favorite person on the internet likes to say, facts don't require your approval, right? It's here whether you approve it or not. Perhaps that's not the most Jesus's way, Jesus-y way of putting it, but the point is the kingdom of God is so expansive, it's so transformative that the statement is true whether the hearer welcomes it or not, believes it or not, accepts it or not. The proclamation applies to everyone and you get to decide what to do about it. I think it's an incredibly freeing way of thinking about how we share the message of Jesus. I'm not looking to become an itinerant preacher who goes from town to town, staying in other people's houses. Um, that was offered to me in college. There was this guy, I went to Anderson University, God bless, go Ravens. And uh, there was this guy in college who took this, his entire theology was rooted in these verses and this, this idea. And um, he was, um, this happens when you go to Christian colleges sometimes, he was looking for a wife that would share in this mission with him. And, uh, and so he needs somebody who's gonna take his faith seriously, right? And um, maybe not surprising to you, I was a person who took my faith seriously in college. And so I remember um, sitting down at a Perkins 
in Anderson because that's the only place that was open really late and they had a college menu with these like massive blueberry muffins that were like a dollar and they were open until like three in the morning and so we spent a lot of time at the Perkins in Anderson when I was in school. And so, uh, so I remember sitting down at a table with him in Perkins and you know how there's like 84 stages to dating, especially when you're like in your 20s and in your teens. Okay, so we were at that point where we were like talking but not like doing anything. This was like the closest to a date that this ever got, okay? And so we're sitting there at the Perkins at I don't know what time, probably 11 p.m. or something, and uh, having a blueberry muffin that cost a dollar, and he's laying out to me that what his vision is for his life is that he's not gonna own anything, and he's just gonna go from town to town and stay in people's houses and do this, like he's reading it to me, and he's like wondering if I'm interested. And I'm like, you've got, I not own an extra pair of shoes. You were talking to the wrong girl like that. This is not who I am called to be. Uh, and I'm pretty sure we never spoke again. I don't even remember his name. Like this is like, I don't even, I couldn't, I've been thinking this week, not that hard because I don't care that much, but I don't remember his name. Um, so anyway, he maybe is called to this and maybe some of you are called to this and, and I'm sorry if that super offended you by, uh, by telling that story in any way, but I'm not called to this particular task. Here's what I think all of us are called to. I think all of us are called to root our lives in these two proclamations. Peace to this house and the kingdom of God has come near. This is good news that we have to share. It's good news for the children in our church and for the teenagers. It's good news for your small group. It's good news for the other parents that you sit with at baseball practice. It's good news for our coworkers. It's good news for our sorority sisters. It's good news for people who are new in their faith and for people who have been trying to love Jesus well for decades. Peace be upon this house and kingdom of God has come near is good news. It's good news because these proclamations keep our gaze on God's activity right in front of us on how God is bringing shalom and goodness and fullness of life to those around us, on how God is making right the wrong things of this world, healing the sick and binding up the brokenhearted. It's good news because there is still so much work left to do and we're invited to be a part of it. It's good news because you don't have to know everything about a person to wish God's best for them. You don't have to know everything about a person's story to see the ways God is at work making wrong things right in their life. You don't have to know the end of the story. The story doesn't have to be, none of our stories have done are done. If we're still breathing, then God's not done, right? So you don't even have to know everything about a person's story or how the story is gonna end in order to point to the ways that you can see God at work in that person's life and story. It's good news because we can participate in this with other people. The kingdom is drawing near. You can see God doing something in your own life, in the world, in someone else's life, and you can say what you see. It's if you see something, say something, right? Only it's like the good Jesus kind. For the 72, this manifested itself in healings, that they were healing the sick in these towns that they went to. And I think that God is still in the healing business. God is in the business of healing us spiritually, of healing us emotionally, of healing us physically, of relational healings. Your, uh, your relationships maybe have been broken between you and a peer or in your marital relationships there's brokenness or between you and maybe your kids or you and your parents or you and your siblings, all these relationships that we have. I think that we see the kingdom of God come near when those relationships are healed. We see the kingdom of God come near when addictions are broken 
broken. We see the kingdom of God come near when people take, maybe, the, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a relapse somewhere in the future, but when we take a step toward healing, we see the kingdom of God coming near. We see the kingdom of God come near when we see the kingdom of God coming near in, in Rod's life, in the miracle of Rod's life over this last year and a half, right? Every time we see physical healings, relational healings, spiritual healings, when people take steps toward Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming near and all we have to do say it. We don't have to theologize about it. We don't have to draw all the conclusions. We don't have to have any answers. We're just pointing to it and saying, I see God in your life in this way. The kingdom of God is coming near for you. This was broken and it's being made whole again. God is at work here. That's all it is. That's empowering for me. I hope it's empowering for you too. Especially in these weeks before Easter, maybe, maybe you point out God's work in someone's life and it leads to a conversation you weren't expecting, which maybe leads to an invitation to an Easter service, which maybe leads to them showing up here in a few weeks. I'm not saying that's the agenda. I wanna be clear. I'm saying that Easter is, just happens to be one of those days when people are open to coming to church when they're maybe not open to coming to church at other times. That's what we're telling our students right now. We're having an Easter service in the hangar for the first time in 17 years. We don't normally do an Easter service in the hangar, uh, but this year we're doing one and we're really excited about it. Uh, And what we're telling our students is to be thinking about who in your life feels like there's no hope and you can tell them there is hope and I want you to come and see it. Like who in your life just just needs a sense of hope and you could invite them to come. Plus we're doing a free pancake breakfast beforehand. It's at 1 p.m. on Easter, by the way. Tell every teenager you know there's free food. That's the only part they're gonna care about. Um, Anyway, so the 72 go out, right? They go out and they do this. And then uh, looking at verse 17, the 72 returned joyously saying, Lord, even the demons submit themselves to us in your name. Now this is interesting because uh, it was just a chapter earlier that the 12 disciples were not able to do the things that they wanted to do in Jesus' name. And now the 72 are casting out demons. It doesn't really say what's changed, but regardless, this is a big deal. Everyone is rejoicing, including Jesus, which we're gonna see in a moment. moment. But first, Jesus gets a little intense, like maybe a little weird. I hope it's okay for me to say that in church. Uh, We're gonna read uh, verse 18. Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority to crush snakes and scorpions underfoot. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice because the spirits submit to you. Rejoice instead that your names are written in heaven. I told you, it's a little intense for a second. Um, So remember that the 72 just went around declaring that the kingdom of God has come near. And now Jesus is saying that whether it was in a vision or whether it was literal, we don't know, but Jesus is saying that he saw Satan fall like lightning. Satan's been defeated. And the disciples have been given the authority over snakes and scorpions, which is another Old Testament reference that's being used. It's metaphorical for images of the power of evil and the end of days. And so Satan is in free fall and the disciples have authority over the power of evil. And all that's really important. That sounds like a big deal to me. Satan's been defeated. The disciples have power over all evil. But Jesus says, but hang on, that's not the most important part. The most important part, the thing I want you to get excited about is that you are experiencing, you are going to experience life with God in heaven because your names are written in the book of heaven. 
And then verse 21, at that very moment, Jesus overflowed with joy from the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and shown them to babies. Indeed, Father, this brings you happiness. My Father has handed all things over to me. No one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wants to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, happy are the eyes that see what you see. I assure you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see and hear what you hear, but they didn't. Okay, appropriately, Jesus is now expressing his own joy in prayer to God over what's happened. But not interestingly for the outcomes. Notice that what Jesus is expressing joy about is not over all the people that were reached. What Jesus is expressing joy about is the people who went out, is the witnesses to these things. Um, Again, pulling from Isaiah as well as the Psalms, Jesus is praising God for the 72 for their young faith. Listen to how the message puts it. At that, Jesus rejoiced, exuberant in the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, master of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the know-it-alls and showed them to these innocent newcomers. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. Can I confess something to you? I, uh, I really value the intellectual part of my faith. It's important to me. Um, I, uh, it's a big part of how I connect with God is through... Um, reading things and trying to understand, the knowledge part of trying to understand who God is, the knowledge part of trying to understand the theological ins and outs and the intricacies, the the questions that I have about faith and then reading lots of different theories about them and trying to piece that together, that is an important part of how I connect with God. So I'm 110% not down on having an intellectual faith, right? Like I'm not down on that idea of having an intellectual faith because that's important to me. That's a big part of my own faith. Where I, and maybe if you relate to that, you sometimes maybe have to watch, is that I become a know-it-all. That's something I have to watch for pretty carefully in my own life. I have to try hard to make sure that I am humble enough to admit when I do not know what the answer is to the question that has been asked. In my role, especially when a student has asked a question and I don't necessarily have like a ready answer. That's actually, this is is more than you care about, but that's actually really important for student, uh, for young people's spiritual development. If you're parenting somebody in this room, you admitting that you don't know the answer to that question about why God did that or why God is that way is actually really important for their spiritual development, for their spiritual formation. Um, And so I try really hard to not be a know-it-all. But I also... uh, I don't know that anyone would describe me as being an innocent newcomer either. Like, I gave my life to Jesus in 1988, right? I've been at this a long time. So I don't know really where I fall here. I don't think this is as simple as having a childlike faith either. Literally, as I was sitting at home, um, so in the, in the ref- one we looked at earlier, it talked about revealing it to babies. And as I was sitting at home um, working on this message, like literally laptop in my lab. My daughter, Ella, who's five, was annoyed because I was working and not playing with her. And she was like, I'm bored, but I'm so bored. This is so boring. I was like, you've got a million toys in this house. Go find something to do, right? Um, but she was bored and she just wanted to be with me, but I really needed, I really needed to work. And so uh, eventually she grabs one of my Bibles that was sitting there. She opens it up and she starts reading it. Now, Ella can't read, but she reads, okay? Um, And so she starts reading the the Bible out loud to me while I'm working, which wasn't distracting at all. And and she says this. At one point, I I like pause and I, I listen in for a second only to hear her say, so he died for our sins 
and now he lives in our hearts. But when he rose again, he didn't have anything to walk with, so he didn't have any legs. (laughs) So we're getting there, but maybe a few things have been left out along the way. Um, So uh, I think that, uh, here's what I know about kids that I didn't know before I had kids. Kids can be know-it-alls too, right? Like, especially if you have parents like me and Kevin, probably being a know-it-all is genetically, like you're genetically inclined to it. So um, it's not so much about being young or old. I think it's about being open to God showing you something different. I think it's about being curious. I think it's about being teachable in your faith. Um, I think God has new things to show and teach those of us who come with the innocent curiosity of someone who's young in their faith. I think when you approach your faith from a place of knowing it all, then it's hard for God to teach you something. But when you come from a place of, I don't know everything, or at least I don't know much, then there is so much room for God to teach you things. I wanna be one of the ones that Jesus can use, that Jesus can teach, and you probably do too. I want that last verse to apply to my life. That special relationship that Jesus talks about between God the Father and God the Son is something that others are invited to see. Jesus says that he can extend that invitation to whomever he wants. I want Jesus to extend that invitation to me. I wanna be teachable so that Jesus can invite me to know more and understand more. But Jesus tells the disciples in verse 24 that not everyone gets to see and hear what they've seen and heard. And so they're happy, or in some translations, they're blessed because of what they've seen and heard. They've seen the manifestations of the kingdom of God having come near. They've seen healings and they've seen the powers of evil that are being defeated and they've seen who Jesus is and they're blessed for having seen it and heard it. So what does all of this mean for all of us? Thousands of years later on the other side of the globe in a completely different time and place and yet also living on this side of the kingdom of God has come near. A couple of challenges for you as we end. One, whether you are young in your faith or old in your faith, are you curious about your faith? Are you asking questions and wanting God to teach you new things about who God is and how God is at work in the world? Are you looking for manifestations of God's kingdom that can teach you where God is active and moving? Are you open and ready for God to do a new thing in your life or in the life of someone you know? What if that looks different than you expect? What if that looks different than you thought it could look? Are you open and ready for God to teach you something? What if we were a church full of people who were innocent in their faith, who were curious, and above all, who wanted to keep growing, who wanted to keep learning more about who God is by being with God, by walking with God, by seeing and hearing God so that we may continue to serve the kingdom of God? May we be humble enough to have eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing in us and all around us. And the second thing is this, I wanna invite you in the weeks between now and Easter to practice proclaiming these things. Maybe not in those exact words, maybe for you to uh, go across the street to your neighbors and walk in the door and say, peace be on this house is weird, fair. Fair point, right? Or for you to uh, walk into baseball practice next week for your kid and be like, the kingdom of God has come near, also weird. So what could you say? How could you restate those proclamations, the the spirit of those proclamations, the essence of those proclamations in a way that A, sounds natural to you because you won't do it if it doesn't sound natural for you, right? But how could you restate them in a way that sounds natural to you? Maybe it's, I can see God's love in your life right now. I can see how God is healing this part of your life. 
Maybe it's, I'm so encouraged by how God is working this out in your life. I don't know, whatever is natural for you, but practice proclaiming the kingdom of God where you see it and do the same with the blessing of peace. Restate it in some way like, I want to see God's goodness in your life. I'm praying for God's blessings to be known to you. Whatever sounds natural in your mouth, but put these proclamations into practice between now and Easter. The whole point of this text is that Jesus is on his way to the cross to finish the work that he came here to do. And he sends out the 72 to go ahead of him between here and the cross. There's not much time left, right? There's not much time left between now and Easter, but there are people that God wants to do a mighty work in over the next few weeks. And I think we as a church can be the 72 who are being sent out to go proclaim God's peace and God's kingdom to those people, that they might be ready to hear the message. What would it look like if we had that same kind of urgency to proclaim these things in these couple of weeks right before Resurrection Sunday? What if we had the same urgency? What conversations might happen? How might God work and move in our lives? We don't go into it with an agenda. People see through agendas, right? We go into it as men and women who want to be faithful to what we've seen and heard because we know that it is our blessing to have seen it and heard it. May we be faithful to that. May we bear witness so that others might see and hear God in their own lives. Let me pray for you. God, I pray in this moment, peace on this house. God, I pray that the shalom that you talk about in scripture, that your peace, that the fullness of life might rest on every household represented in this room. I pray that the people who are here might see your blessings made manifest in their lives. I pray, God, that they might know the kingdom of God coming near for them, that they might first see it for themselves so that they can then see it in other places, that they might see how you are healing them, that they might see how you are putting their relationships back together, are giving them strength to walk away from things that they know are bad for them, that they, that you are giving them, that you are giving them wisdom in their decision-making so that they can move forward and navigate challenging situations. God, that you, the kingdom of God is coming near for them, for every person in this room. May they know your peace and may they see your kingdom. And God, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, might we then, might we then name it for others? so that we can see how you are doing the same thing in their lives. God, we wanna be a sent out people who are ready, who are in the yes position to whatever interactions you have for us. We wanna be a people with eyes trained on you and on what you're doing. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Send us out, God. Amen.